My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. There are few people I admire more than those who stand up for awesome causes they're passionate about. And living here in uh, L.A., a.k.a. La La Land, I particularly love it when actors use their stardom and skills not only to entertain, but to help us all live more meaningful lives. You know what I mean? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and you are all in for such a treat today. Not only is our guest a celebrated film and TV star, but an award-winning activist who is making a tremendous positive difference in the world. She's actually already influenced uh, my own life, which I'll, I'll share in a bit here. Alexandra Paul has starred in over 75 feature films and TV programs, working opposite all kinds of amazing stars, Kevin Costner, Tom Hanks, and Aykroyd, Jeff Bridges, Pierce Brosnan, and others. She's also internationally recognized for her five-year leading role as Lieutenant Stephanie Holden in the TV series Baywatch. I bet you all remember that. I sure do. Uh, But being in front of the camera is far from Alexandra's only interest. In 2011, she was a spokesperson for Chevrolet's plug-in car called The Volt. So awesome. And she has been driving electric cars since 1990. I didn't even know they existed then. It's amazing. Uh, She's featured in the highly acclaimed award-winning documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car?, which made the top 10 documentary list on Netflix. And she's hosted 150 episodes of the environmental cable access talk show called Earth Talk Today. She's an animal lover to the fullest, is a passionate vegan and advocate for ending animal cruelty. And she actually traveled to Louisiana to aid animals after Hurricane Katrina. And she also traveled to Nicaragua with a medical aid group. On top of everything else, she's a certified EMT and to South Africa to register voters and to Sierra Leone to promote family planning. How much do we love that? In educational films she wrote, produced, and hosted called Jam Packed about the human overpopulation crisis has won several environmental awards. She's won numerous awards and honors herself for her personal activism, and we are so lucky to have her here in the studio today. I don't know if I can articulate how honored and, and excited I am to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, it's my pleasure, really. Thank you for having me. Before we uh, explore your wonderful activism, I would love to hear a bit more about your uh, your very dynamic film and television career with so many different kinds of roles, and you started pretty early. How did you actually get started in, in TV? I have been an actress for over 30 years, and I um, started when I was, my first role was when I was 18. I was modeling in New York City, and there was a TV movie being cast called Paper Dolls, which was basically about models so they were looking at unknown models to play the part of this up-and-coming young teenage girl who was going to become a superstar model and I was fortunate enough to get cast in that it was a uh, um, Leonard Goldberg production and he was part of Charlie's Angels and Love Boat and lots of other big things and this was 1982 
So I came to L.A. and we shot that movie. It's uh, I was playing opposite Daryl Hannah and Eric Stoltz. We were all teenagers. And um, it was one of the top five movies of that year. And TV movies were really big back in the early 80s. The ABC movie of the week was what it was. Okay, and, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I remember so, that. That's exciting. Um, so, so lucky to start off in Hollywood that way. I was actually taking a year off before going to college, and I chose just before uh, I was supposed to start my first semester to not go and to stay here in L.A. anyway and continue acting. Oh, interesting. So did you already have the acting bug, or was it that experience that really showed you that that's what you wanted to pursue? Well, when I was taking a year off before college and modeling, my modeling agency asked me to take acting classes because they wanted to send me up on commercials. And it was like a whole new world opened up to me because I had never been exposed. My parents are more cultural. We went to museums a lot saw plays, but we were never expected to, like, be the artists. We would just be looking at the artists. <laughs> so it was like a whole new world. And um, so that's when I think it started. My first acting class started me thinking, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> How exciting. That, yeah. That's beautiful. And do you have, I know it's hard to choose, but do you have one particular favorite role or one that really stands out that's personally very special to you that you've played? I've been so fortunate that I've really had a wonderful time on every single project. Every single one, over 100 now. Um, But I have to say that this might surprise people, but Baywatch definitely was the happiest time on the set for me. I love shooting television series, and I especially love that one because it was on the beach. I was rescuing people. (laughs) I didn't have to wear a lot of makeup or high heels, and the cast was fantastic. That's incredible. Uh, I remember seeing Baywatch and actually thinking uh, that it was so beautiful. I thought you were so stunning. And also the fact that you stood out to me as someone who was so stunning but didn't uh, have the same sort of like um, that, quote, Baywatch babe body type, which encouraged me because even though I had really poor body image at the time, so I I certainly didn't feel like I was as attractive as you, but I thought, you know, beauty in other shapes and sizes besides that one, you know. And uh, so thank you for that. I thought that was, um, whether you were trying to be inspiring or not, I thought that that you were. (laughs) I definitely wasn't trying to be inspiring, but it's funny because I... I grew up in New England, and we just never thought about breasts in the 70s. It wasn't like a thing. I never thought that my breasts were worse because they were small. And it wasn't until I got on Baywatch that I realized that some people do look at women as less sexual or sensual or beautiful because their breasts might be smaller. It was like, oh, my God, it was such a... Revelation. It was, wow. and but I never. I still liked my own breasts, so I never chose to have um, breast implants. Even though if other people want to do it, it's fine. It just doesn't fit my lifestyle, which is very athletic. Yeah. And um, the interesting thing was is that the first season I had long, longish hair was you know past my shoulders to my breasts actually, and I realized that I couldn't be that Baywatch babe. I just it wasn't that I. A, the bathing suit that they had for me was cut. There was one cut fits all, and it didn't fit me. And um, (laughs) so they actually ended up after the, I think it was the first or second season, uh, after the second or third season I was on, designing a bathing suit that fit my body type better, um, that looked better on me. And I also cut my hair because I wanted to become more myself Mm -hmm. rather than trying to be something that I couldn't. And the long flowing hair kept me, like, still there. And so I cut it. And even though I'm not crazy, I wasn't crazy about my hair being so short, 
I think it, it's funny because people now say, oh, yeah, you're the one with the short hair. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I actually only had short hair for two of the five seasons that I was on. But it had uh, an impact. I guess apparently. so. <laughs> I'm the one with the brown hair, the short hair, and the small breasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So, um, yeah, it was really interesting in terms yeah. of. Uh, my self-image, and it actually didn't hurt my self-image to be on Sounds that show. Sounds like it kind of helps that you, you know, I think at least in, in my experience and many women I've talked to, we have to work really hard to get to that place where we want to be more of ourselves, you know, and to have that authenticity. So that's that's beautiful. And you all were pretty good friends it sounds like. Oh yeah, my other. castmates are amazing. All yeah. beautiful people inside and out. And Incredible. I remember I remember I I had somebody tell me, ask me what it was like. Actually, I had a lot of people ask me, what is it like to work with those women? As if I was the outsider and that I should feel threatened by how I knew what they meant. They meant, they meant they're more beautiful. And how did you feel? Did you feel differently beautiful? I think they meant that, that that they were beautiful. Yeah. Okay. And it was so funny because I never felt different, competitive or less than I just felt different. I did feel like my beauty to was different but um so it was it was interesting that that is interesting (laughs) it was also interesting that people don't think actors have feelings so they do ask these questions that can uh had one guy walk into i'm almost a fan of yours and i'm like oh you're kidding oh my gosh (laughs) so people sometimes they just don't know what to say but i think sometimes they also think that actors don't have feelings you know i think you're right whether they know it consciously or not because and i think the fashion industry is similar i worked in the modeling industry for like about 15 years almost and uh, it's interesting to me that people ask you questions they would never ask another profession you know if, if how much money you make uh-huh. you know stuff yeah. like that it's, it's very interesting to me and uh, you know the industry itself can be difficult I think in living in Los Angeles on you know how we feel about our bodies uh, I know you you ended up developing an eating disorder at some point. Was that influenced by the film industry and your lifestyle here? Or would you say that that was completely, you know, separate? And, and I know they're very complex and many factors play in. I actually did have an eating disorder, but it started when I was in high school. And God knows why. What kind of sick girl is anorexic, feels terrible about how she looks, and then goes into the modeling world? Where that was yeah. masochism at its... I guess I needed to feel validated somewhere. And then to go into the acting world, it was like a load off my shoulders. Because when you're an actress, you don't have the strict parameters that you do as a model. Mm-hmm. And so nobody ever told me to lose weight. And as an actress, or that I wasn't, nobody ever told me to my face, I might have told my agents that I wasn't um, pretty enough or good enough or anything from how I looked. It was just different types. With modeling, it's a much smaller box. So actually, acting was not, um, I don't think, pressured me. And any, I would have had a need disorder no matter where, what profession I chose. If I had been a lawyer, I would have had one. I was not being authentic to myself, and I gave up too much of myself to other people trying to please them. And by the time I was cast on Baywatch, I was no longer bulimic after 12 years. I would never have taken that show if I was fighting with bulimia. I just wouldn't have. I would have known that it would have just made me crazy. So I actually had been um, abstinent from bulimia for over a year by the time I... I, um, said yes to Baywatch and I was I felt so having an addiction is so oppressive and mm, 
stressful. And I just felt so great not having that anymore. Yeah, I got you. That being in a bathing suit was not as big a deal for me um, because I just felt like I was so much healthier than I'd been and so much more accepting of my body. And of course, if you, if you're bulimic for 12 years, it doesn't work anymore. Whatever, whatever addiction we choose in the beginning, it works for whatever you're choosing it for distraction, self-esteem. But um, after a while, it stops working. And so bulimia did not keep my weight down. In fact, after I stopped throwing up, um, and binging and purging was when my weight stabilized. That's so interesting that you brought that up because I think that there are so many myths about eating disorders, and one of them is that everyone with an eating disorder you can you can see it from the outside. You know, yeah, no. they go hidden, and uh, and then also I love that you talked about how empowering and freeing recovery is because having been through anorexia, which kind of morphed into a bunch of other things along the way, and and I I yeah. reached full past tense, you know, recovered as well. I w- I've been amazed how many people will say things to me like, uh, I know you'll always struggle with this. I've heard it recently even, and I've been recovered for a, a long time. And just to hear people say, you know, because I know that there are women out there uh, and perhaps some, some men too struggling with these issues and to hear, it is so freeing, it is so liberating, your, you know, your life begins and you become more of you. And I don't know if I would be without my eating disorder history, so I'm grateful for that part of it. I know it's so challenging and, you know, you went through it so young. Uh, so how long have you been vegan because I know you're very passionate about your vegan lifestyle did that were you uh, as a child already considering that were you an animal lover from a very young age I became a vegetarian when I was 14 which in 1976 meant for, to everybody that you were going to keel over from lack of protein and stuff <laughs> wasn't, I mean the 70s were kind of a hippie era too but yeah. a lot of people there weren't very many vegetarians and I became a vegetarian after reading a book by Francis Moore LePay called Diet for a Small Planet my parents had that book. Yes, yeah. yes, a lot of people did. It was a very popular book, and I became a vegan. And probably also because I was 14 and I wanted to piss off my parents. I was a good girl, so as you can see, I acted out with food. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I became a vegetarian. Um, the, the concept of vegan was not in that book or wasn't even really around. I wasn't aware of veganism. And veganism, by the way, for your listeners is... Vegetarian is when you don't kill anything to eat it. Um, Veganism is more of a holistic lifestyle where you choose not to exploit animals at all, meaning that we don't wear animals or eat them or eat anything from them, so their milk, um, their honey. Uh, And also we choose not to, I personally choose not to ride horses anymore, and I will not work with animals unless um, in in uh, entertainment, in movies, unless they are domestic animals. Fascinating. I've, I've never actually heard anyone talk about that specific mm-hmm. element of veganism, yeah. but that's, that's very interesting. Uh, and I'm actually wearing my vegan shoes here. Hey, <laughs> so, did you do that for me? Cause I <laughs> did partly. I mean, I love them, but yeah, I, I partly did. I thought I was an extra good reason to, uh, to wear thank them. Thank you. My husband actually is a meat eater, so I, I believe in just me being who I am and letting yeah. everyone else make their own choices. So sure. If you had worn your leather jacket, I would have, it would have been okay with <laughs> You've me. You've been all right. <laughs> That's awesome. So your, uh, with the eating disorder setting in, did, did uh, veganism, when you actually went full vegan, was that 
challenging to, I know you find your lifestyle very freeing. Has it always been that way or was there a point when uh, you were recovering or newly into recovery with your eating disorder that it at all felt restrictive or has it always been this uh, way to feel more free and authentic for you? Because I'm an ethic, I was an ethical vegetarian. I was vegetarian because I didn't believe it was right to kill animals, and now I'm a vegan because I don't believe it's a right to uh, it's right to exploit animals. It's not a health thing for me. It's not a diet thing. I feel that um, you know to lose weight like Clinton did or Al Gore. It to me it's purely ethical, and I was a vegetarian for 33 years. But I did give up every. I gave up leather, wool, and silk way back in the 80s. So I've been. But I didn't get rid of dairy until four and a half years ago because I was so afraid that that restriction would somehow put me back into an eating disorder. And I think it was really – and that's what I think it is. It might have just been an excuse that I didn't want to give up frozen yogurt. I don't – <laughs> yes. but um, what I learned was that when I gave up dairy, that, those last vestiges, and I didn't really have too much, um, actually food, it just – because my ethics were in line with my diet and I was, I was aligned completely, food became even less of a question for me. I was so surprised by that side effect. I didn't think that would happen because, um, you know, for, like you, you might be fully recovered. Food will always be it's, – it's, it's, it's never neutral for me. Like I know some people who forget to eat or who, you know... They're just it took me like, a long time to get there. Yeah, I think <laughs> I mean, I'm... not that I advocate it, but, you know, to forget anything about food. Yeah, I know what right, you Right, I'm not there yet, you know. Yeah. I still recognize that I'm a million miles away from throwing up, but I could get there in one minute. Yeah. I, I, so I'm... Uh, so you know where your limitations are and your boundaries to keep yourself safe. I'm, yeah, I'm just... I'm very aware. So I'm still very aware of food. So... Yeah. Um, and I try and be really healthy... Uh, veganism has just have has let a little bit of funnily enough that awareness go a little bit. I don't. It's. I've worked amazing. with a lot of people with eating disorders, and it's interesting to me because you a lot of people actually there's the the exception is somebody who is because I was vegetarian first as a way of restricting, and oh, that happens. Right. So when I decided to. Because I love animals, I have, you know, I'm a big advocate of, of rescuing and fostering instead of, you know, you know, taking care of animals in any way we can. And so that has been a, a struggle for me is trying to figure out, you know, h- how to not feel restricted at all, you know, and to have a very so I have a plant based lifestyle, but it's not fully vegan and, um, but it's uh, it's interesting to me how we can feel uh, that sort of, you know, those those complex emotions and trying to find that place where we are really in our in line like you said with with our ethics and feeling that freedom and a lot of people I've met actually what heals them from their eating disorder or their disordered eating habits like compulsive dieting or mm-hmm. all of those things which so many people struggle with is finding that uh, very ethically sound plan that usually has to do with either veganism or vegetarian, some sort of vegetarianism, that they feel so much strength and empowerment from it that it kind of frees them to think, every bite I take is helping this cause I'm passionate about. And I think yeah, that's really beautiful. Actually, I do. I feel like some people see my diet as restricting. I see it as just so freeing because it has freed me. It has freed me even more. I've done a lot of work on myself, but 
it's emotionally and balancing wise and just knowing I guess my ethics are stronger than my insecurity whatever is driving me to obsess about something like food my ethics are are higher than that it's my higher power sure uh, that's so, beautiful. and I didn't know that. So, and I regret that I didn't become vegan earlier. Um, and I'm hoping that if someone is on that, worried in the same way that I was, that maybe hearing me, they will take that leap. It was so much easier than I thought. It was yeah. so. And there's easy. no harm in trying. You know, that's right. Because as you said, that literally no harm in trying. Yeah, <laughs> less harm in trying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I was really, really moved by your uh, TEDx talk uh, from last year. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to play a short little clip from it. Sure. I grew up in the 1960s watching those TV commercials with those starving kids in Africa who stared vacantly at the camera with sad eyes and distended bellies. And in sixth grade, my glee club teacher, Mr. Collins, had us change the words in this song we were singing. Three billion people in the world to four billion people in the world. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe that the population was so big. And it was even more shocked because no one else in the class seemed at all disturbed by this fact. And a couple days later, I told my friend Susie Hollander that because there seemed to be too many people in the world for it to handle, that I wasn't going to have any kids. And she looked at me and she replied that she was going to have three. And I felt pretty alone in my beliefs. And 37 years later, I still feel pretty alone in my beliefs, and I'm still shocked that not more people are disturbed by population growth. And I think it's because, as a species, we've decided not to talk about it, to kind of tuck it away. So I'm here to untuck it. So powerful. I have chills. I... As a fellow woman who has, de- who has chosen to not have children, I know there can be criticism for that decision for all kinds of reasons or simple you know, misunderstandings about it. How have people reacted when they find out that you have decided to not have children for this reason? I think most of the time they don't want to talk about it because it's a little uncomfortable. I mean, I even feel uncomfortable. Like, so I don't know if you feel this, but someone will come up and go, hi, hi, nice to meet you, August. It's so great. And then you'll find small talk, and one of the small talks is, do you have any kids? Uh-huh. When someone asks me, do I, have, do I have any kids? And I say, oh, no. There's this silence, yes. and people don't know what to say. So I start talking really fast, saying, <laughs> we have a cat. And then and my husband's had a vasectomy, and they don't want to hear that. <laughs> and so I try and, like, fill the uncomfortable silence. It's, yeah, it's, um, I can relate. So <laughs> it's not anybody's fault. It's just that we're not used to meeting. It's just not we're not the norm. And I come from – I'm very concerned about human overpopulation because now – when I was in sixth grade, the population was 4 billion. It's now 7.3 billion. It has more than doubled in my lifetime. And in my mother's lifetime, it has tripled the world population. And it's, we can't go on like this. I don't have children, and I'm worried about the future. I'm amazed that people who do have children aren't worried about what kind of world their children are going to 
grow up in. And that's why I'm really trying to talk about the issue and encourage people to start looking at family size differently and not lauding the larger families of three kids. By the way, I had a brother and sister. They're amazing. I'm so happy that I did. But also my friend Nick, he grew up as an only child, and he's happy the way he was. He doesn't know any different. Sometimes I didn't want my siblings, and Nick mm-hmm. told me sometimes he wished he did have a sibling. It's, but for the well-being of our future, we have to start having smaller families, everybody. Those yeah. of us here in the United States and those of us in Africa, India, China, everybody. It's, it's, just an, it's just math. Yeah, that's incredible. I had no idea that the pop- population had increased that much. And it, it is interesting to me how seldom we hear anyone talk about that. It's usually not the reason that somebody brings up for why, you know, if they ask me why I've chosen not to have kids. That actually was not a reason that I decided to not have children, but it has become another reason for me to feel very strong in it which is which is which is a beautiful thing uh, do you feel I know that Los Angeles uh, has a very high teen pregnancy rate uh, the United States I think has one of the highest um, teen birth rates in, of all the developed countries what role does sexual education play into all of this I think it plays a lot into it I mean it's interesting because I can tell you after visiting Sierra Leone, what I learned is that, um, I, let's put it this, in, I think birth control is very, very important, but it's not the only thing because in a lot of countries, and in this one too, there's a lot of pressure to have children. And a lot of people, couples who have just one, everyone asks, well, are you going to have another? Are you go-? It's, it's an unconscious pressure that the government gives you a tax deduction for every child that you have. The economy is set up to have more and more consumers. That's how capitalism works. And if a country's population is lowered, there are um, uh, lots of (laughs) doom and gloom stories in the media about how the economy is going to suffer. And I think the emphasis, unfortunately, is on the short term. The economy will suffer because capitalism is based on growth. but in the long term, it's so much healthier because we'll, we won't run out of valuable resources like water and land. And these kind of things um, are so important. They cause wars. People, I believe that the next wars will be over water. And um, so it's not only a sex issue. It's a national security issue. It's a biological issue. It's our biological imperative to procreate. We've done it so well that we've, we now are adding a billion people to the planet every 12 years. Wow. And in 1830, there were just one billion people on the planet. And it's, it's, I mean, we're amazing as a species, and now we have to be an amazing in a different way, which is to yes. stabilize our population humanely, and that is by using birth control. I digressed a little bit. You asked about um, young people and birth control. In, in this country, I think birth control is really important that it be accessible, affordable, free, and that there be sexuality taught in schools, both for girls and boys. Yeah. It's so funny. Early on, too. I mean, I don't know about you, but I bought my birth control. My boyfriends never said, hey, can I help you with the sponge? Can I help you with your birth control pills? No. Yeah. Which is foolish because I got pregnant. And if I was a woman, I was like, if I was a woman in my 30s, 
and the guy's not, and I wanted to have kids, yeah. and I was single. Guys, you know, they need to. That is a really. <laughs> I good wouldn't point. have had an abortion, maybe. Yeah. You know, if I had wanted children, and I was in my thirties, and that guy would be saddled for life. But men are taught that response to take equal responsibility, even though the woman might be using the birth control. That's really true. I read something recently about uh, females carrying more condoms. Than, than oh men. really? Yeah, and I don't know if that's I I can't uh, quote the if that's nationally or a particular mm. survey, but it was talking about just that because now there are uh, condom companies that specifically market to women, and they're not female condoms, you know. And I I found that very interesting, and also having in my I've always been very outspoken about anything I'm curious about, which is where this all comes from with sexuality and. In almost every single case, every boyfriend, every partner I've been with, th- when I have brought up protection, all that, st- they're always like stunned. Like there was like this surprise of, oh my gosh, this is so mature. I can't believe we're having this conversation. And it's like, well, I don't really want to get pregnant. And I don't think you do either. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. And I think sex ed needs to start earlier. You know, we need to be more comfortable with our bodies. And yeah. all of these, the solutions sound you know, I think people can hear this and feel quite overwhelmed at times. You know, it sounds so complex, simple in one way, in some ways, you know, just simply have fewer children. But how can we start? Do you, do you recommend that parents, for example, start conversing with their children about this, you know, when they're little, instead of just having like the sex talk, talk also about these kinds of issues? Well, I think if a parent believes it, then they should, if they feel strongly about it. I think mostly our government needs to have more incentives for people to have smaller families instead of, like I said, giving tax deductions. We have things like baby showers that celebrate births. And I, and I always feel like a Grinch when someone has their third kid, and I'm thinking, I can't believe you had a third kid. Oh, my God, don't you know that in in 35 years there's going to be 9 billion people on the planet and we have to stop, and 11 billion by 2100 unless we start changing our ways? Um, that's that's what I'm thinking. But I go, yeah. wow, that's so fantastic. Yeah. You know, I can't, I've, I'm, I'm also a product of my culture. And that's I right. feel like such a Grinch by telling somebody, you know what, I can't, I, I don't tell them to their face. You know, you really shouldn't. Well, it's too late, <laughs> it's right? It's kind of late, yeah. So we need to have more of an encompassing, sure. um, so that people understand the benefits of having a one-child family sure. or no children at all. I'm really, I, in my TED Talk, I talk about a one-child family. And people... And even population organizations, they won't go that far. But it's true. We have to have one-child families. And they're discouraged, I I find. And all of the friends that I have who are – I have four siblings uh, who are all wonderful. But if they – you know, if – one of them had one child, I wouldn't be worried about, you know, people worry about like, well, they'd be socialized. And, and I, I do think culture discourages that. It's so interesting. Yeah. And the way that you described feeling Grinch-like, <laughs> if you just change a few, that's how I feel women who choose not to have children are talked to about not having kids. I, one thing I hear often is, well, what, are you, what about when you're old? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and you know, actually, that's a very important thing where the governments can help. We have social security, and so that helps us and a lot here in the United States. But in countries like Africa, where there is no social security or there's farms that are that are worked by human hands, it's really that's they have children to be farm labor and to help them in their in their old age or in a culture where girls are not valued because they can't. Uh, they're basically sold off or married off to another family 
and she becomes part of that family, she no longer is part of her original family, then you can understand why they might want a boy and keep having kids till they're a boy. I, I'm, I'm interested in if people get a boy and a girl, do they usually stop or do they usually have a third if they have girl, girl, and they want a boy? You know, it's interesting. I have three sisters and a brother. And when I tell people that, very often I hear, oh, the boy is the youngest. Yeah. They, is that true? He was second. No. Oh, oh interesting. No, yeah. my parents just, you know, trusted faith and wanted a, you know, they just, they, they knew they wanted a family. I don't think they decided how many or anything. And they didn't care what the gender was. But I do think that that's we can have that freedom to not care here. Right. Whereas in some countries, like you said, it's about survival. Yeah, so the governments need to change. You know, the governments need to um, start providing... Social Security and and the the urban populations are having fewer children because just practical apartments it's too expensive and so people have much less space and they don't have farms to work on and it's interesting a lot of people bring up religion but Italy has one of the lowest birth rates of any country in the world and we all know that the Vatican is right in the middle of there there yeah, and it's a very religious country and um, it's because the women are empowered when women are empowered and they are, go to school and they have they feel like they are on the planet for, for um, to choose whether they want to be a mom or have other pursuits too they tend to have smaller families and that is the that is the fastest way to stabilize and lower the world population is to send girls to school and empower women and you need to educate men too of course but um, when women are empowered, they, they, they're the ones who do most of the raising of the kids, so they choose to have smaller kids. That is beautiful and so beautifully said. And, and also, boys are usually, they have more opportunities for education. Oh, so yes. there definitely needs to be effort and focus on, on educating women and, and empowering them because it's such a gift that we do have choice. You know, that we can choose whether or not to, to have children or to, you know, or to nurture in other ways, to to have purpose in other ways. I think we parent, quote, parents in many ways, you know, through activism as well. I think that that's a very, you know, it's leadership and it's it's a beautiful thing for sure. I know your activism has, has posed lots of challenges. I read that you uh, have been arrested numerous times. You were in jail for, for five days. How do you deal with uh, that? Do you get afraid or how do you put that fear aside and, and keep on going? Uh, most of my active I've been an environmentalist since I was a child. That was my that was one of my motivations for becoming a vegetarian and it sort of it's probably the biggest influence in my life how I look at the world. Now at being vegan I also look in the world in terms of speciesism and justice and um but for, I've always been an environmentalist and so most of my um activism has been in the environmental peace and voting arenas and now animal rights and overpopulation. Well, overpopulation, I've linked a lot to the environment because the environment's not going to be able to handle very well 9 billion people on the planet. Um, so, yes, I have uh, done, I think, about 18 civil disobediences, all peaceful, and I've been arrested. I've been to jail a couple times, spent three days in jail for protesting uh, nuclear weapons in Nevada, and I've been arrested... Uh, for gay rights, and um, then my the stint, the five stint, uh, the five day stint that you talked about was I was protesting the Iraq War, so I was I protested on the day we started bombing, 
and with the Catholic priests. I'm not Catholic, but the the Catholic workers have a very strong peace activism, and so I often activate with them. And um, so yes, I, I and then I was also did another peaceful civil disobedience a month later. So that's why I went. And I could have paid fifty dollars to not go to jail and pay the fine, but I just couldn't pay money to the government. That the is. Yeah, so my poor lawyer. I had a lawyer, and I said, you're not to defend and say, try and get me off. You are to just accept everything and uh. say, yes, she did it, and this is and this is why. And he he was sweating so bad. He <laughs> says, I've, I've never had a client who doesn't want to get a lighter sentence. I said, you just tell them what I've done, and that's why I've done it, and whatever sentence they want to give me, then I'll take. <laughs> wow. So, um, yes, I was in the... Um, in the L.A. Detention Center here downtown for five days. Wow. That must have been uncomfortable, to say the least, I would imagine. I was scared, by the way. You asked about fear. I'm not scared of getting arrested because I, I, um, I'm white, frankly. Yeah. I'm yeah. white and I'm female. So, and I'm always peaceful. So uh, that, I've never been afraid. Um, and I always also knew that I could get a higher lawyer to get me out. So that has been an advantage that I've had Some, that a lot yeah, of people don't. That we can do with our privilege. Yes, you know, exactly. That we can do with white privilege and, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. and being someone that people aren't you know, aggressive toward based on how we appear. Right. Yes. Um, but going to jail, yes, uh, in the L.A. Detention, I was scared because it was all new. Um, but uh, let's see, a spy befriended me because she was represented by the same law firm as I and then there was like mafia murderess and it was so interesting <laughs> interesting is not it the word I would have chosen some meth dealers oh my and, gosh um, I, my heart just yeah. pounded a little bit I'd be very scared if the mafia started hanging out with me <laughs> well you know I did I learned to, I did have um, I was called into the office uh, after like day th- three or something and the woman said I just found I've I just found out who you are, and I just want to tell you to just keep your you, people will try and take advantage of you, and you need to keep your distance. And I already had learned to keep private, you know, not give away anything, any phone numbers or anything sure. like that, not make friends friends. Um, so uh, yeah, I handle myself. Well. I even taught yoga in the really? in the jail. Yeah, we, we in had the a jail, common you area. Taught yoga. That's amazing. Yeah, we could go out during the day and. So they were doing some yoga that was just like speed yoga. And I was like, whoa, hey, I can, I can lead this class if you like. I love it. You're the activist in jail, too. And I love that you use the term activate because I never even thought about that, that an activist activates. Yeah, I just made that up. But you can spread I like the it. word. Keep you it. have a mouthpiece for that. So. <laughs> there we go. I love it. I love it. Uh, and what is your biggest goal moving forward? You're doing so many different things. Uh, is there is there one particular pursuit or cause that uh, we could support you toward? Well, I'm now concentrating on two issues, and that's human overpopulation and animal rights. They are two fringe issues that um, I think uh, I... I think my place is, is I'm, I'm needed here. I was involved very much with the environment and with electric cars, but they've become more mainstream. They don't need me. And so um, I'm now moved to encourage people to look at animals not as creatures for our own good, but as, as creatures in their own right with their own desires and feelings and right to live peacefully without our interference. Beautiful. And what's the first step that people can take if they want to 
uh, live a lifestyle that is more kind to animals and say they're perhaps not ready to go full-fledged vegan, are there some simple things that you can recommend that are, are great for someone who's a little bit intimidated by, you know, kind of a major shift? Yeah, I actually do because I um, I used to pass out a lot of leaflets for vegan outreach and I would people would come to me and they say, I love cheese. I just can't give up cheese. And I would say, you know what? Don't give up cheese. Keep cheese, but give up all the other stuff you're not that big on because an animal died for that and suffered for that. And it's so disrespectful if we're eating stuff that we're not crazy about. Um, so just give up all that other stuff you don't really like and substitute. If, if milk, you know, almond milks, there's a ton of great almond milks. You know, I have to say, I'm a really cheap date, and I, I, you know, lawn leather shoes are really inexpensive, and lawn leather belts, you know. That's so a good there's point. a lot of things you can do. To read labels and read. That I was first inspired by the books I read. So, Animal Liberation by Peter Singer I read when I was a couple years after I became vegetarian, and also cosmetics. I've, you know, that's an easy thing you can do is you can check the. Um, there's a there's a, a beauty without cruelty website you can go to and you can see what companies test on animals and what don't and buy the ones that do. Beautiful and those products are also better for our skin. I'm sorry, and our buy the ones that don't test on animals. Oh yes, ah, yes, sorry. that is that is what I'm sure people <laughs> probably heard, but. <laughs> Amazing one word can make quite a huge difference. Yes. Uh, and what is one tip for someone who just wants to make a difference in general? Because, you know, you're so prolific in your activism, and I feel like so many people want to do more or they're passionate about something, but they're afraid of taking that first step or perhaps afraid of what other people will think. Or what, is there a, a mantra or a, a, some sort of idea that you live by or a quote or something that really, one, one that works for me is uh, passion speaks louder than nerves. Oh, I, I keep that nice. with me anytime because I, anytime I feel like the butterflies are getting out of control, I think that to myself and the passion grows and I go, oh, I can do this. Is there something or someone who's inspired you that, uh, that maybe listeners might hear about and go, you know what, I can do this. Well, I'm no longer a religious person, but I did go to Sunday school. And the quote that I learned and that I basically really moved me was, when in doubt, do what Jesus would do, the kindest thing. And now because, and I, you know, I'm not particularly religious, you can, and if you're not particularly religious, you can say, when in doubt, do the kindest thing. Uh, and I also want to add that as consumers, we are so powerful, and every day we have a choice with what we buy uh, to do the right thing. There's so many opera they're not they don't have to be big, just small things like what you buy. And uh, there we have so many choices. I was in a store yesterday and it said something like two. 300 items in this aisle, different items. And I'm like, whoa. In so, one aisle. <laughs> I, you know, I can't remember. It was at Whole Foods, and it was like they had it on the floor. And, you know, if you have that many items, you can choose the one yes. that most fits your ethics. And sometimes it's a gray line, and you're not perfect, but at least you're better. It's like one step towards. And it feels good. 
mm-hmm. every step, and it empowers us. Uh, speaking yeah. of our products, I actually have a gift for you from some of our partners and sponsors here. Um, Good Clean Love has all organic, vegan intimacy products. Oh, well, thank uh, you. So, and then I also included is, a, is intimacy product. Is that like lubricants? There's lube. There's uh, we have body candy for you. Oh. They make wonderful uh, love oils that work thank with your natural you. pheromones. And that's awesome. Well, my yeah. hu- my husband and I thank you. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoy them. And thank you so much. I, I just can't thank you enough for being here and also for the very inspiring work that you do. Anytime that I or we can be supportive, please let me know. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Isn't she fantastic? To learn more about Alexandra, visit her website, alexandrapaul.com. Next, we have a special treat from our partner over at Good Clean Love, Wendy Sturgar. She shared some thoughts with us on how to grow an organic orgasm. That sounds intriguing. Most often, the term organic applies to our food. Sometimes it's there to certify fabrics or product ingredients. Rarely is it applied to our sexual appetite. But I believe that most of us are longing for the real organic connection that generates true intimacy the kind you can feel change you from the inside out. This rare breed of intimacy is the one that we sing about and write movie scripts for. It creates the kind of sex that grows out of a relationship where you are as deeply connected in life as you are in the bedroom. Here are Wendy's top five tips for making this happen. Number one, prioritize and make time for sexual intimacy in your relationship. That's so important. The to-do list can get in the way and it just doesn't happen. Number two, communicate well, which starts, she says, by listening to your partner, really listening. A lot of times we think communicating is is all about talking, but we want to make sure we're listening first. Number three, show up for your partner by choice because you want to, not just out of habit or obligation. Don't simply coexist. Number four, know that it takes homework. You should both be committed, she said, to keeping both feet into the relationship. And lastly, take responsibility for your erotic self. Begin by getting to know your sexual anatomy and what brings you pleasure. You know I love that tip. Thank you so much, Wendy, for those wonderful uh, suggestions we can all apply to our lives. To learn more about Wendy and her brainchild, Good Clean Love, the makers of this incredible organic lubricant and other intimacy products, head over to goodcleanlove.com, where you can also read her insightful blog, Making Love Sustainable. Wendy and Girlboner's favorite stylist, Rain, will both be participating in my annual Beauty of a Woman blog fest, which takes place the end of February. I'm so excited. We celebrate real beauty and female sexuality. We have two fabulous categories, and this is our fourth year. Thousands of people participate. I hope you'll join us. To learn more and sign up as a participating blogger, visit my website, augustmclaughlin.com, and click on the blog fest tab. And while you're there, make sure you visit my um, blog itself for some fabulous after chats with Girl Boner guests and a whole lot more. You can also connect with me and the whole Girl Boner community by finding me on Facebook and Twitter. And if you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and leave us a simple review while you're there. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.